is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Hello, Nailers fans, and welcome into episode three from season two of the Toolbox. I'm your host, DJ Abacella. It is now July, and there is a lot to cover on this week's program. First, since we last spoke, the 2019-20 Wheeling Nailers schedule has been announced, so we'll touch briefly on that. Then we'll start to dive into player moves. We do not have the first signing yet for the Wheeling Nailers, but if you saw our social media earlier this week, it is literally right around the corner. A few players have signed elsewhere. We'll touch on that. Also, look into the organization and some of the moves that the Penguins have made in the early stages of the free agency period. Plus, we'll have a great interview with a former broadcaster for the Johnstown Chiefs, who is now the radio broadcaster for the Columbus Blue Jackets. That's Bob McElligot. We start this week's episode off with the news, and there are two elements of the news. I absolutely love it because the fans are so engaged, and they're the two most asked questions I get during the summer. Number one we're going to talk about today, that is when is the schedule coming out? And it is out, as you all know. You can go to wheelingnailers.com to check the full schedule. Number two is when will the player signings begin? And the answer to that question, of course, is next week. So first off, for the schedule. As we told you on earlier episodes, the Nailers will begin the home season on Saturday, October 19th with a 7:05 game against the Indy Fuel. That is not the first game of the regular season. The Nailers will open up that on Saturday, October 12th when they visit the Cincinnati Cyclones at 7:35. This is a very division heavy schedule with 50 of 72 games against division teams, so there's going to be a lot of important games this year. Those four Four-point swing games against the likes of Cincinnati, Fort Wayne, Indy, Kalamazoo, and Toledo. But... For fans at West Banco Arena, there will be a good amount of variety coming into the building this season as you'll get a chance to see the Maine Mariners at home for the first time. The Nailers traveled to Portland last season. The Kansas City Mavericks will also be on the schedule for the first time ever, plus the Tulsa Oilers, who were the Mountain Division champions last season. They'll come early in the season for a Friday night game in late October. And then the travel schedule, it's actually really simple in terms of not a lot of places the team is going. They go to the division cities, and then other than that, it's just Reading, Brampton, and then the three-game trip to Rapid City in the middle of December. So that's certainly one I've marked on my calendar that I'm looking forward to, as it'll be the first time I ever step foot into the state of South Dakota. Thanksgiving Eve is at home. New Year's Eve is at home. This is a very fan-friendly schedule in which 67 of 72 games overall are either on weekends, holidays, or those morning games. We have two of the morning games at home this year, and we'll play another one on the road in Toledo in early November. So again, wheelingnailers.com to check out the full schedule, and we have a lot of great ticket packages available. I'll tell you more about those at the end of the program after we talk 
talk to Bob McGilligot from the Columbus Blue Jackets. Continuing on the theme of news, like I said, we're going to start with our first signings of the season coming up next week, and it's going to start rolling. I think I have about six of them ready to go, so those are going to come at you fast and furious, and we're going to get a real good feel as this team starts to come together into the month of July and eventually August as well, which will take us to training camps in September. There are two players who we know will not be returning to the Nailers this season, both on the blue line, both played big roles with the club last season, so we want to pass our best wishes on to them in their next chapters in the hockey world. First off, it's Kevin Spinozzi, who netted 17 goals last season. That's the third highest single season total for defensemen in Wheeling hockey history. He is signed with HC Balzano, which is located in Italy, and then the player who has played the most games in team history, Dan Fick, 258. He has signed to play with the Nottingham Panthers in Great Britain, and Fick was the final member remaining from the 2016 Eastern Conference Championship team, so we want to thank Dan for all that he did here in his four seasons as the Nailer. Wish him the best and also Kevin as well, as he showed us some really great things, especially last season in his second year as a pro. One other former Nailer now, we have to use the word former, was involved in an NHL transaction, interestingly enough, as we got to be part of that Phil Kessel trade, as Dane Burks was part of that, joining Kessel, going from the Pittsburgh Penguins to the Arizona Coyotes. In return, Pittsburgh got a pair of former first-round draft picks in seven-year pro Alex Galchenyuk. Galchenyuk first started his career with the Montreal Canadiens for six seasons, and then on to the Arizona Coyotes, where he played last season and then 20 year old defenseman Pierre Olivier Joseph and Joseph is very highly talked about and this is a really good trade in terms of him for Pittsburgh because he has a lot of good hype coming out of Major Junior. He played in the QMJHL, Charlottetown, and Drummondville. As a 20-year-old, he can either return to the Q this year or he can turn pro. And certainly he may be fast-tracked as a former first-round draft pick with a lot of great potential to get to the NHL sooner than later. Sticking with the Penguins, their July 1st free agent signings included forward Brandon Tanev from the Winnipeg Jets who got a six-year deal. Also forward Andrew Agazino from the Colorado Avalanche. David Warsawski also from the Avalanche and Penguins fans will probably be familiar with Warsawski who played in the organization from 2015 to 2017. We also are familiar with the Warsawski family because Ryan Warsawski, David's brother, was an assistant coach and then a head coach for the South Carolina Stingrays. Pittsburgh also signed one other player to an NHL contract, and that is forward Joseph Blandisi, who spent last year with the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins for the second half of the campaign. Last week, the Penguins held their annual development camp at the UPMC Lemieux Complex in Cranberry. Head coach Mike Davis was on the ice with the prospects, and he told me there's also a good chance that we'll see probably a good handful of those players at least in Naylor's uniforms this upcoming season. There was one player from last season's club, and that was Renars Krastenbergs, the now 20-year-old forward, who certainly showed some really bright signs last season as a rookie. He was the youngest player in the ECHL last year and really put up some strong numbers for the Nailers in his first year in this organization. Speaking of Renars, he was one of seven players who have thus far signed an American Hockey League contract in the recent weeks. 
Joining him, Ryan Scarfo and McCoy Urkamps. Scarfo's a forward, Urkamps is a D. Both of those players were acquired midseason from the Ottawa Senators, and those guys completed the season with Wilkes-Barre Scranton. Defenseman Matt Apt, I love Matt Apt. He was a player who came to Wheeling at the end of the 2017-18 season, finished out after his college career, and then signed an ECHL contract in the summer of 2018. Never saw him, though, because he was good enough to be able to stay in the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton lineup for the entire season. So Apt gets himself another AHL deal. Blake Siebenaller, defenseman who we saw at the end of the season, he was acquired by the Penguins in a trade with the Columbus Blue Jackets and unfortunately had his season cut short towards the end by a tough and unfortunate injury, but really excited to see Siebenaller coming up this season. That's assuming, of course, that we do see him here in Wheeling at some point in the year. You don't know depth-wise and numbers-wise how things are going to shake down, but after playing in the American Hockey League for most of three seasons, to see him come here, he had a good attitude and you could really see how the talent was and that he could really flourish as a top pairing defenseman here at the ECHL level. So if the Nailers are fortunate enough to get Siebenhaller in the lineup on a regular basis this season, that could be a really big feather in their cap right there. Also, defenseman John Lizotte, who was a rookie out of St. Cloud State, scored one goal in three games with Wilkes-Barre-Scranton. Again, we'll see how the chips fall as far as where Lizotte will land in the organization. And then also forward Christopher Brown played three games with Wilkes-Barre-Scranton at the end of the season after leaving Boston College. The organization is getting deeper and deeper by the minute. There are now over 50 different players who have been signed to either NHL or AHL contracts. This week's guest on the Toolbox is a good friend of mine. He's also the radio broadcaster for the Columbus Blue Jackets, who had quite a season this year winning their first ever playoff series, doing so in a sweep against the President's Trophy winning Tampa Bay Lightning. It's Bob McGilligot. And Bob, what was it like to experience that? This was a team 18 years waiting to have that one playoff series win. And like I mentioned, you sweep the best team in the league. Yeah, it was uh, it was shocking, quite frankly, because if uh, you looked at the last couple of weeks of the regular season, there was a real question as to whether or not the team was even going to make the playoffs, and they barely did. And I get in as uh, an eighth seed, and the reward is to face a team that had just uh, you know set a record or tied a record for wins uh, in the history of the National Hockey League. So uh, I'll be honest with you, going into that series, I feared that it would last only four games. I didn't know it was going to be four games the way that it went, but it certainly was a pleasant surprise, and it was it was good for the city. It was great for the team. Um, you know, winning a playoff series for the first time was uh, you know made it, it that it, that could have happened in any fashion. Could have been a seven game series. It didn't matter. Uh, just to get that done was great for the city. But uh, I think for the guys that were involved in it, the, the players, uh, the fact that they were able to come together and do what they did and, and shock the world for that one round was really special. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't last another round. It only went six games into the next round. But uh, it's, it's certainly something that I don't think anybody involved in it will ever forget. 
Let's go into your personal side of things before we dive more into the hockey talk. I want to give our listeners here in Wheeling a chance to learn more about you from Somerset, Pennsylvania, which is not too far away from here. And while your hockey broadcasting career began with a rival team for the Nailers and the Thunderbirds, the Johnstown Chiefs, I love this story. You shared it with a good friend of mine, Mike Antonellis. You didn't go straight to the booth. So how did you first fall in love with hockey and how did you first get your foot in the door? Well, growing up, just uh, you know, being born in Pittsburgh, growing up about an hour east of Pittsburgh, I was always a, a hockey fan. I appreciated the game, and uh, was you know, I liked I liked hockey, and it wasn't something that I was going to get into as a life's work, if you will. That that sport was baseball, is what I really wanted to do. But as I got out of high school and and I started to to move on in life, and I went to broadcast school, then. Um, I got a job, a part-time job at a local radio station back at home. And when I was going into radio, uh, the advice that I was given was just find a way to get your foot in the door. It doesn't matter what you're doing. In fact, I was told, empty the garbage if you have to. Just get in there, let people know who you are, and show them how you work, and good things will come of it. And that's what I did when I got a part-time job in radio. So the uh, the team in Johnstown had been sold and the new owner and this would have been oh gosh it was all the way back in 1993 the new owner was looking to do some different things and one of the things he wanted to do was add a mascot and there was some concern about that because you know they hadn't had a mascot uh, johnstown's a, a pretty old fan base uh, the season ticket holders had been there for uh, many many years and there was some concern as to how a mascot was going to go over in johnstown but they had open auditions, and uh, because of the foot-in-the-door theory, I went and I auditioned and wound up uh, getting the job. Uh, the irony of the audition, by the way, is that the guy who was the broadcaster in Johnstown at the time was Dave Michigan, who is now doing radio for the Tampa Bay Lightning. So uh, Dave and I, we recount this story every year and still laugh about it, but uh, Dave was one of the two guys that took me out and you know, took me to the mall at lunchtime, put me in the costume, and I interacted with people, and I got that job. So uh, it went over well. The owner was thrilled. I ended up getting a minor league baseball offer as that uh, season was going by, and I took the baseball play-by-play job in uh, North Carolina with an Indian single-A team, and it was a it was a, uh, a seasonal job. So when the season ended after Labor Day in single-A baseball, I had no job. So I wanted to go back home and the owner of the Chiefs said he'd like to have me back as the mascot, and I told him that's great, but I can't work for only 30 bucks a game. i got to have a real job, too. So he gave me a job as a director of group ticket sales, and I was calling uh, church youth groups and the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and whoever I could to try to sell tickets during the day and then during the home games. I was dressed as the mascot. And uh, as time went on, they had had a new radio guy, Dave Michigan, had moved on to uh, Hershey. And a guy who actually used to be in Wheeling when they were the Thunderbirds, uh, uh, he worked with Dave Gosher for at least a year, was uh, Greg DeVito. And Greg had gotten the job in Johnstown, and, and Greg was kind enough to, he had some high school games he had to do as part of his deal. He said, if you want to do these games with me, I'll help you learn how to broadcast hockey. So we would go do the high school games that eventually worked into me going to uh, some of the shorter road trips, which at the time were Wheeling and Erie and doing color on the broadcast with him. So that's kind of uh, how I fell in love with uh, broadcasting hockey. And a couple years later, he got a chance to go to New Haven in the American Hockey League. The Johnstown job was open. I had the experience. I had the connections. 
And uh, I guess the rest is history, as you would say, DJ. That's right, Bob. And that Wheeling-Johnstown rivalry really seemed like Wheeling came right in the league in 92-93. They met up in the playoffs, and Johnstown was in the league up until 2010. So having a chance to live that rivalry in its early days, what was it like? And coming into Wheeling Civic Center as a visiting broadcaster, what was that experience like? Well, it was great. I mean, the the whole rivalry part of it was great because you just hated that team and you knew that they hated you as well. So that always made it fun. You know, the, the fans didn't like each other. The teams didn't like each other. Nobody seemed to like each other. And, uh, the, you know, the towns are very similar. The, the buildings in many ways were similar. And uh, the style of play was almost identical between the two. And of course, back at that time, uh, in the earlier days of the East Coast Hockey League, I mean, the the amount of hockey that you saw was uh, not very much as compared to the amount of physical play and fighting that you saw. So it was always a great time. It was fun. But I do remember the first time I went into uh, Wheeling to broadcast. I didn't realize, and I don't know if it's still there. It's been a long time. But that air horn was right there mounted next to, very close to where I was broadcasting from. The first time they set off that air horn, uh, let's just say it got my attention. And that was one thing I never enjoyed about going into that building. Oh, we still have the horn to this day. I like how you mentioned how in that day of the ECHL, it was looked at as more of a rough-and-tumble league, almost all about the fights, whereas today it's getting a better image of being a true developmental league that helps get players up to the National Hockey League. How do you see it from up top in the NHL, looking down onto the ECHL, and how it's kind of evolved since you've been in the league? Well, you're right, it has, and it's, you know, I... I hope that someday, and I don't know how it's going to work out, but I, I hope someday it's it's even more like the baseball structure where the American Hockey League obviously is the AAA level of it. Uh, the ECHL is the AA level of it. And and when I say I hope that it evolves to that is, you know, there, there are these shared affiliations, which, you know, they work. You're, you're getting a chance to, to get your players developed. I've always thought they were kind of weird. I mean, even back when I was in Johnstown, we had guys from different organizations. and um, You know, that works – that works great when they're there, and then all of a sudden this team has two injuries and this team has two injuries, and you lose four or five of your best players are gone uh, right away. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think there used to be a day back in my day, and even when I got into the American Hockey League and, and first got into the National Hockey League, you would uh, look sometimes and go, oh, wow, this guy actually started in the East Coast League, and he worked his way up through the American League into the National Hockey League. And it was – you. You didn't count that many of those guys. I think today it's it's much different. I think there are many more of those guys. I, I think as uh, you know the the league itself, the National Hockey League has gotten younger, and you, you've got to draft well, and you've got to develop, and you've got to find playing time for your young players. And the East Coast Hockey League, or now the ECHL, has always been a great place for that to happen. I think it happens. Uh, I think it happens more. I think you're absolutely right. The structure of the league and uh, the style of play and everything is. Um, way more conducive to what goes on in the NHL. So, you know, that uh, that development is, is much easier now. It's it's much more of a polished path now than it was way back in the, uh, the mid to late 90s when I was in the league. 
it's cool that you went through that path too, having gone from Johnstown in the ECHL to Syracuse in the American Hockey League, now Columbus in the NHL. You mentioned Dave Gosher earlier in the interview, very familiar with him in Wheeling, who's now with the Vegas Golden Knights. Brennan Burke started in Wheeling too, now with the New York Islanders. One of the things that I noticed though about your journey, and I look at the different teams that you were a part of, and unfortunately playoff success seemed to be few and far between. Did that make you appreciate winning that much more and really kind of soak in what happened this year? Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, when I was in Johnstown, and I only broadcast there for two seasons, and we didn't even come close to making the playoffs. I, I had no idea what playoff hockey was to experience. I really didn't. I, the two years I was there, I was doing minor league baseball in the summertime, and, and when I was in Johnstown, I was doing the baseball in Salem, Virginia, right outside of Roanoke. So and, and, and the funny part is I would go to Salem to do baseball and hang out with uh, the Roanoke Express was in the league at the time, and I used to hang out with their radio guy and uh, meet up with them after the playoff games because they were one of those teams that tended to go pretty far in the playoffs. So um, I didn't understand really what it was all about. I went to the uh, American Hockey League in my first year in Syracuse. We were affiliated with Vancouver, already knowing that Columbus was coming in as an expansion team as the affiliate the next year, but... We got into the playoffs that year, and uh, we played Hamilton, Ontario. They were affiliated with Edmonton. Uh, at the time, I think they had eight guys, maybe, that were in Edmonton because the Oilers were in the playoffs. Uh, again, I to wrap my head around what that meant, I wasn't really sure. I hadn't been in, with a team that had gotten to the playoffs, and uh, Vancouver was not in the playoffs. We had our guys and got beat in that first round. Uh, you know, a couple times in Syracuse, we had some – some decent runs, but never got past the second round, never got to the conference final. So, yeah, the, to get in the National Hockey League and, and get knocked out in the first round a couple of times, um, you know, now I had more of a feel of what it was all about. But to finally win a round and, and know that you had a team that was good. Now, I'll tell you what made me so mad about the losing to Boston in the second round was if the Blue Jackets could have won that, they would have been in the Eastern Conference Final. I truly believe that. I think they would have taken care of Carolina, much like Boston did. And I think they would have been there, and I think they had a chance. I think they had the personnel. And so that, you talk about the appreciation of what you went through, there is that. But there's also that knowledge now, you know, if you go back to where I was when I was in that league and had no idea what it was all about, fast forward to just a couple of months ago where I know there was a chance that this team could have played until June. So, yeah, you do appreciate it. You you appreciate every second of playoff hockey because it's so special. And I heard you talk on one of your CBJ and 30 episodes about how many more hats and shirts you began to see around town. And it was almost like people found it suddenly cool to be a Blue Jackets fan, even though that the attendance was always there. With that being said, did you see a change in the mentality of the fan base who, okay, they always had the Blue Jackets, but now all of a sudden, hey, this is the winning Blue Jackets. This is a new thing that we really can get behind. Yeah, you're... Your hardcore loyal fans are always there no matter what. But the the fringe people, the ones that maybe don't understand all the nuances about hockey and they don't really want to embrace it completely because they because they don't understand all of it. I, I think they're I think at all levels you still have people that they wanna like it, they wanna really get into it, but because of the misunderstanding of some of the rules, they won't completely embrace it because they don't want to look stupid to talk about it. Um I think that all of that was washed away with uh, that series victory over the Tampa Bay Lightning. 
because again, this is a town that is—it's it, a town that's used to winning. It's a college football town. They put over a hundred thousand people in a stadium several weeks during the fall to watch Ohio State play. Um, you know, I think they're very spoiled in the fact that you know, in college football, if you go twelve and zero, that's just normal. Uh, you don't go eighty-two and zero in the National Hockey League, and and I think over the almost twenty years, that's the the biggest thing to me is. You can't beat everybody. It's a league of parity. It's that there are no Youngstown states on the schedule, right? There, there are no teams that you just uh, get off the bus and you already have them beaten. It doesn't work that way. So, I think that's what people. Um, I think that's what people appreciated about the big win over Tampa, and I think it's also what disappointed them after a six-game loss to the Boston Bruins in the second round. It fascinates me how quickly things can change, too. And you like you talked about the parity. And with Columbus earlier this week, we just saw Panarin, Bobrovsky, and Duchesne all going elsewhere. Do you notice time frames getting shorter for some of the real contending teams where they may only have a five-year window to truly make it happen going for a cup, but also where you can see teams with the development and the drafting like we touched on earlier, they can turn things around in the blink of an eye also? Well, you've got to have the drafting and the development. I mean, that's where that's where it is these days. And, you know, in the case of Matthew Shane, I think that that additional first-round draft pick that the Blue Jackets would have had to give to the Ottawa Senators had they re-signed him, I think that turned out to be a big deal. I think he overshot the money per year that they were willing to pay. And then when you throw in missing a second round pick for two straight years, I you know, I think that was a I think that was a big deal. And it is because of draft and development. I think it's so different for so many teams because, you know, you just look at uh, your affiliate there in Pittsburgh and, you know, it's uh, the death of the Penguins is coming and then they win back-to-back Stanley Cups. And and now, you know, after last year getting swept in the first round, the death of the Penguins is coming again. They've got to restructure everything. And, you know, the fact of the matter is with that team, in my opinion, as long as you have Crosby – and Malkin playing, you got a chance to win it every single year because um, they can surround those guys with different guys and, and still get great production out of it. Um, you know, they changed the goalie there, and that didn't uh, that didn't stop anything. So uh, you've got those kind of teams, and then you have the other teams like you were talking about, where maybe there's a, a small window. If you don't have those superstars, I think there's a, a smaller window for you to try to get it done. But that being said. I don't think that the St. Louis Blues really had many superstars. I think that, you know, they were they were terrible. There were there was at one point and this might have been in November, they were talking about uh, the talk around the league was a fire sale of the St. Louis Blues and guys like Tarasenko might be available and uh, Alex Petrangelo might be available and a couple months later they hoist the Stanley Cup. So, I you know, I I don't know. I I don't know. I don't think it's it's not catching lightning in a bottle, but um on the other hand, it's it's all about, I think it's all about playing your best hockey at the right time of the year. You know, St. Louis proved that. As soon as they figured out their goaltending problem, which I could have told you two years ago the problem was their goaltending, but they finally figured it out. They found somebody that could stop pucks, and they won the Stanley Cup, so there you go. We talked earlier, and I really I hope things go the way that you mentioned with that baseball model, because I really enjoy that, and I think it would be good, especially here in the ECHL, to have the footprint 
on most of the roster being NHL or AHL contracts. Heck, the AHL, probably about 90% of those players are under NHL deals. Do you see that as being some of the bigger differences recently in player development as it's kind of shifting towards that model? I know we have all sorts of things like training and strength coaches and development camps every year that we didn't have 10 years ago. Yeah, all those things make a difference, too. I think the players, look, when I was broadcasting in the ECHL, I mean, uh, the number of guys that were smoking cigarettes and just, you know, doing a whole bunch of things uh, that you wouldn't do now, I mean, drinking profusely was like, that was just a way of life, right? I mean, there wasn't this, I have to have this health regimen and I've got to, I've got to have these uh, specific protein shakes and this and that. I mean, it was, it was a different time. Uh, all of that stuff has, um, has made a big difference. Uh, the individual coaching, uh, the way that, players invest in themselves I, I think one of the biggest things is that players kind of treat themselves uh, as their own business now what you have to do i mean you, if if you got to spend some money to to make sure that you're getting some uh, off-season training that's what you do if you have to spend some money to work with a skill coach uh in the off-season that's what you do I, I think players are doing that so much more i think that really to be honest with you the the, the reason that it'll never get to that full baseball structure is because you know, in, in baseball, the salaries are paid from the top all the way down to the lowest levels of the minors by uh, the major league team. And that that's a tremendous cost, let's be honest. Uh, you know, when you factor in the cost of the the players uh, and their salaries, even though it's, it's not a tremendous amount when you get to the lower levels, and uh, you factor in the equipment costs and all that stuff, um, you know, that stuff factors in too. So uh, it's... I don't know how and when it'll change. You also only have so many contracts, right, in in the uh, in the NHL. And then you can sign the AHL, ECHL contracts too. But uh, I don't know. There, there's there's more investment by the players. There's there's more of the development. How far it goes, I think that's just going to eventually come down to how much people can agree upon that uh, that they're ready to spend on it. Quite frankly. Their off-season regimen features a lot of training. You don't have to sell group tickets like you did in Johnstown anymore. You're still doing your CBJ and 30, which is always fun to listen to. Any other fun activities during the summer before training camp hits the ice in September? Well, sometimes I do have to sell tickets in the summer. Sometimes they'll have these, you know, they'll get these uh, get-togethers where they bring in uh, prospective season ticket holders and they'll bring in a player or a member of the management and they'll want me to go in and host for a 45 minutes or an hour, you know, open forum questions and that kind of stuff. So technically, I still help in selling tickets in the summertime. But um, my main summer job, if you will, for the last nine years has been uh, I have a son that plays travel baseball. And all of the years of baseball, the 16 years of calling professional baseball uh, that I had when I got here, I kind of put that to play now. I started with him when he was nine years old as an assistant coach on his travel team he's 17 now he's going to be a high school senior this coming fall so that job is coming to an end i can tell you um but that's that's what i do in the summertime and i really enjoy it because it's it's still sports it's uh, to get better i think it's uh, the way i look at it too is helping kids i just don't want to help them become better athletes or baseball players i want to help them become better people um I I work with John Tortorella on a regular basis, so I picked up a lot of that. Sometimes that works well with players and their parents. Sometimes it doesn't, but uh, I never lied to them. It's just as simple as that. But uh, that's a lot of fun, and that's going to come to an end here in the next couple of weeks, and then I'll have some downtime. And like I said, with my son going into his senior year, he's he's developed into a, a pretty good pitcher, and 
now they're real life things like trying to figure out where you might want to go to school and going and doing some visits and going to some more camps and trying to be seen by more schools and all that fun stuff. So DJ, there's still plenty of things to do in the summer. <laughs> Bob, I love it. I can't thank you enough for taking a few minutes out of your day to reminisce about some of your memories in the ECHL and also take us into what it's like only two hours down the road in Columbus to experience that run this year and hopefully what's a lot of success to come for that market and that fan base. DJ, thanks so much. Uh, always great to talk with you and it's great to talk some hockey in, uh, in July when it's 90 degrees outside. I appreciate it. Thanks. Huge thanks again to the radio broadcaster for the Columbus Blue Jackets, Bob McGilligan, joining me this week on the Toolbox. I absolutely love going back and hearing about the early days of the ECHL, how that Wheeling-Johnstown rivalry felt, and especially getting an opponent's perspective. I heard all the glory days of the Thunderbirds and then into the early days of the Nailers and what it was like from that perspective, but what it's like as a visiting team member to come into this building and also hearing how Bob ultimately cut his teeth in the industry, helping to pave his way ultimately now to the National Hockey League in what was certainly a really fun year for the Columbus Blue Jackets. And like he said, I know it was a tough way for the Pittsburgh Penguins to end their season against the New York Islanders, but ultimately to have the two teams in the NHL closest to us here in Wheeling geographically, Pittsburgh and Columbus, to be competitive and in the playoff conversation year in and year out I think really does wonders for hockey in this area and it's great to see that he was able to experience that success and get a real good taste of it and get those fans up and going because ultimately that's what you want to see. You want to see all the fan bases as strong as they possibly can be. So that's really terrific as well. Again, thanks to Bob for hanging out with me on today's program. As I told you, be on the lookout. Monday is the day for player signing number one. We will have it on our website, wheelingnailers.com. If you're signed up for the emails, you'll get that as well. And, of course, follow us on all of our social media networks, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We have great ticket packages available. Those are all right on wheelingnailers.com. Season and half-season memberships as well as the Big Six. Our sales team has been absolutely crushing it hitting their goal in back-to-back months so that's really awesome help them out give them a call at 304-234-GOAL that's 304-234-4625 also be on the lookout for us in the community some upcoming events include youth hockey night at the Washington Wild Things game on July 6th our very own Wheeling Nailers blood drive on July 15th the Italian festival the weekend of July 26th and celebrate Youth August 1st. Season members, be on the lookout for details regarding signing day. That is coming up in the next couple of months, so we'll have that information out to you very soon. And we'll look forward. I can't wait to see everybody's reactions for our first player signings as we start to build this team for 2019-2020. I'm DJ Basel saying thanks so much for tuning in to this week's edition of the Toolbox. I'll talk to you next time.